0: As we come into the text this morning, we are looking at Peter's closing words in the book of First Peter. We're looking at his closing exhortations um, to the church, as as a reminder. Peter wrote this letter to several of the churches. It was a, a letter that was circulated amongst a a, a, chur- a number of churches in a region. And this letter, specifically, uh, Peter writes to encourage the church that is being. Oppressed and persecuted, they're experiencing some hardship, uh, and he has spent uh, thus far a good portion of the book reminding them of how they ought to endure suffering, how they ought to endure hardship, uh, and specifically in uh, chapter four, he kind of goes into uh, this synopsis. Of what it means to suffer as a Christian you know he starts off saying don't be surprised at this fiery trial that you will experience don't be uh, don't be surprised thinking that you will not deal with hardships in life or or persecution in any way but what instead he says is that we ought to rejoice because we share in Christ's sufferings we are being like Christ when we experience these hardships and as he makes his way through uh his point as as he as he moves into chapter five he he begins to give us this outline of how the church is to kind of to interact with the world and interact with each other but he finishes uh his his kind of idea in verse uh six my number is so small i can't see there we go verse six where he says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you it's peter's point here is that as christians we ought to be humble in nature that we ought to come into all things accepting the hardship difficulty suffering that comes our way uh, and operating in humility, operating in this confession that we are depending upon God to sustain us. Because we ourselves, uh, when we operate in pride, what we're really doing is we're exalting ourselves above God. But when we operate in humility, we are demonstrating, we're showing, we're confessing that we rely on him completely. That we need him so desperately and and this is what peter says here this is why he uses the specific phrases we've talked about last week humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god that phrase of course we mentioned last week the mighty hand of god is pulled straight out of the story of the exodus that where uh, again and again god's work in the land of egypt and rescuing his people from uh, this 400 plus years of slavery is said to be done through God's mighty hand, that he is the one who has shown his sovereignty over all things. He is the one who has demonstrated his power and authority over uh, the said gods of Egypt. He is the one who has demonstrated his power over uh, Pharaoh, who in that time would have been exalted as a god as well. It is Uh, the God of Israel who has rescued with his mighty hand. And so here Peter comes in reminding us that we are to trust him, to trust the Lord, to cast our cares upon him, that we ought not to be worried, that we ought not to operate from a place of anxiety or fear. And it's in doing, uh, in, in operating in that place When we have anxiety and worry and fear, when we are are so preoccupied with those things, when we're protecting those things, we are uh, really confessing that God's not going to take care of those things, that he probably can't handle it, and so we've got to worry about it for him. But instead, Peter tells us that we ought to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And now as we come to the text this morning, he continues to remind us of what it means to be established, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be solid in faith. He comes now, knowing the circumstance that uh, his hearers are in, knowing that they are being uh, in this position of experiencing hardship and persecution, suffering, he says this in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. These are two things that that Peter tells us that we ought to do as Christians. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Now, there's a reason for this, of course. But when Peter gives us command, we also want to see... Uh, what this means, the implications of this command. If we are to be sober-minded, if we are to be watchful, it means that we are also to refrain uh, from being out of control, that we are to refrain from putting ourselves in a position where we are lost or confused, where we're not aware of our circumstances or surroundings. Be sober-minded, be in control, be of a sound mind, is what he's getting at here. There is a need to be alert. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul makes a similar point. He says this, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He goes on in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, "But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." So I want you to see a couple things here with what Paul is getting at. He his command is connecting like Peter, this idea of being sober with being awake, watchful, But then as he moves into verse 8 in 1 Thessalonians 5, he connects being sober with uh, coming in tandem with putting on the armor of God, putting on uh, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. So there's this idea of, faith and salvation that comes along with being sober. Peter will make similar remarks in a moment. Peter, uh, or not Peter, Timothy, uh, Paul later in his letter to to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 5, he says that the way that we endure suffering is to always be sober-minded. He tells Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. And then he tells him, "Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry." He says, "I know that you're going to experience these things, but the way that you survive is to be sober-minded." Now, as as we think about these things, uh, to be sober-minded, uh, you know, our immediate comparison goes to the idea of drunkenness and being sober. And, of course, there's, there's an extreme uh, there, which is helpful for us to understand. When you are not sober, when you are uh, drunken uh, w- or intoxicated with, with alcohol, then you're in a place where you're not aware of your circumstances. You're not aware of, of uh, your surroundings. You're not in, uh, you're, you don't have mastery over your body. You're in a place where you are compromised. And, and, and of course, we see those extremes. But beyond that, what, Paul's, uh, or, or what Peter's also getting at here as he makes this comment is that there is an awareness that we are to have that goes beyond just not being uh, out of control. We have to also be watchful. There's one that just says, be in your right mind, be focused. But now he, he presses in deeper and he says, be watchful. This is the idea of being circumspect. Having this this mindset where you are always looking around, you're you you are aware of your surroundings. You're paying attention. You ever watch those those uh, you know kind of. Um, action action movies they're kind of about spies and and eventually like one spy is like meeting with somebody else and and he tells them like you know i sat at this place in the room because like i know how many exits are in this room i know i know who is the biggest threat in this room right now i know that if i need to make a quick escape here's where i need to go that is what peter's getting at here being watchful he's going into this circumstance knowing that there is a possibility of attack knowing that there is uh, there is a, an awareness that an enemy could be approaching Jesus has similar remarks. In Mark chapter 13, verse 34, he also commands his followers to be watchful. But when Jesus says this, he connects this to faith, just like Peter does. He says, as you are watchful, as you are aware, it's in conjunction with the end of all things being near." As time is running out, it's more important than ever that we continue to be aware of what is going on, that there is a focus that we have to have of what we should do and what we should not do, of how we should live and the enemy that's trying to attack us. He says in Mark chapter 13, verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. He says this idea that he's entrusting this group. They're given a task, and the doorkeeper is told to stay awake. Therefore, Jesus says, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. What Jesus is telling us here is that we ought to be aware at all times, living in such a way that the master could return. That the master could come back in luke chapter 12 verse 37 jesus again speaks similarly he says blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes truly i say to you he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them there's this idea that there's an expectation of the master coming and that those who serve the master are to be aware, to be watchful. Now, as we think about this, what Jesus is not trying to say is that, like, oh, you should, you should really be, like, afraid because the master's coming. No, there's an, a level of excitement that he's getting at here. If you know that the master's returning soon, he, the, the reward here, Jesus tells us, is that if you're awake when the master comes, he's going to be like, hey, like, let's come in and have a feast together. And I'm going to hang out with you, and we're going to, like, catch up, and we're going to enjoy a great time. This isn't a threat. This is a a watchfulness for celebration. A watchfulness, an excitement for the return of the Master. Now, we're looking for the return of the Master. We're looking to that day. That's something that is the positive thing that we're looking for. But there's also, Peter tells us, a reason why we need to be sober, a reason why we need to be watchful. A defensive reason. Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What Peter says is here is this. It's necessary that you are vigilant, that you are sober, that you are awake, because the devil is prowling. The devil is prowling. It seems what Peter is saying here is that the enemy is seeking to uh, really roar, as he describes it, at believers, hoping to scare them, hoping to, to put fear into them and lead them away from faith in Christ. And it seems like the vehicle by which this is happening is the suffering and the hardships that's coming upon them. He's really coming and speaking that same little lie that same little lie that he originally told in Genesis chapter 3, does God really love you? To Adam and Eve, that that very first lie. It seems like he's trying to come and say those very same things to these Christians who are experiencing hardship. Because as they are experiencing hardship and persecution and oppression, maybe you're experiencing those difficulties in your life. Maybe Satan's coming and saying, like, look, like, It doesn't really seem like the Lord loves you very much, because look at the things you're going through. Look at the hardships that you're experiencing. Trying to sow doubt in the minds of Christians. This is what Peter means when he says that the devil is seeking someone to devour. He's trying to inflict these lies, this persecution on uh, these Christians So that they deny Christ. So that they move from faith. And this is why Peter says that Christians must be sober-minded and watchful until the very end. One of my favorite things that I'm really enjoying right now as I... uh, I'm at the gym. I'm crushing, crushing time on the elliptical. There, it's the great, it's the greatest thing because you can watch Netflix while you're on the elliptical. Like you can pretty much stay like pretty, pretty straightforward. But I've been watching the this show, Hunted, Hunted. It's uh, I think it's the BBC with David Attenborough, greatest narrator of all time. I mean like Morgan Freeman, David Attenborough, like they're pretty close. But this show is awesome because it's all about animals. Hunting, and it shows the hardships that they have to go through. And they have, of course, you know this uh, kind of the typical one they've seen a million times about the polar bear trying to get the seals. It's like, okay, whatever. But there is, uh, there is a couple of vignettes that are looking at how lions hunt, how they move in order to capture their prey. And the surprising thing that, that you discover throughout these shows is, is that, like, the odds for uh, the predator is really bad. Like, they, they like, they're like 1 in 20 successful. Because what happens here is that the animals that they're hunting, this prey, they have become accustomed to living in this environment. They've become accustomed to living in such an intense environment where their life is constantly on the line that they live in such a way where they are enjoying their lives. They are resting together. But as soon as one of the animals senses something out of place, as soon as it smells something that's not supposed to be there, as soon as it it hears a noise that it wouldn't normally hear, it flinches and they all run, all of them. It knows what peace feels like. It knows what what the, the calm of the herd feels like. The animals know that when there is a predator near, it's the slightest it's the slightest difference that triggers the rest of the herd to run, to move to safety. Now of course. Some of the animals do get eaten. They are caught by the lions. Which ones are they? The distracted ones. The ones that are not paying attention. The, the, the one, you know, dumb little gazelle that got like a little bit too far away from the rest of them. And he just thought like, oh, I'm going to go out here on my own. Like it seems like, oh, I don't know why the rest of these guys don't move over here. The one that, the animal that's a little bit too young and is down. At the water is rushing in first, not heeding the wisdom of the group. It's it's the animal that's not paying attention that ends up being devoured. And this is exactly what Peter's getting at here. When he tries to emphasize the importance of being watchful, being sober-minded for believers that we ought to pay attention, that we ought to be aware. Right? Because listen to how he describes this, uh, how he describes Satan. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He identifies the enemy here, Satan, as our adversary, someone who opposes us. And he actually calls Uh, he actually calls uh, this name specifically the devil, which means slanderer or accuser. Slanderer or accuser. So our adversary, our enemy, our slanderer or accuser. This really lines up with that idea of Satan constantly trying to tell us the terrible lie. That God doesn't love us, that he doesn't care for us, that we don't belong to him more than that we see through the scriptures that satan's character is one of destruction and that he's constantly trying to accuse us before god if you look uh, even at the book of revelation chapter 12 verse 10 john writes this he says uh, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of god and the authority of christ of his christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Satan, what Satan's doing here is he's constantly trying to say, look at what they did. They don't deserve, they don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your kindness. And he's constantly trying to tell us that. That we don't belong. Satan's goal is to devour us. He's not coming just to like have like a nibble or a taste. He's here for the kill. He, he's out to eat. Not just kind of wound you a little bit. To completely destroy you. In his 1861 sermon entitled The Roaring Lion, Charles Spurgeon describes the work of Satan this way. He says, He can never be content till he sees the believer utterly devoured. He would rend him in pieces and break his bones and utterly destroy him if he could. Do not, therefore, indulge the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He is pleased with that, but that is not his ultimate end. Sometimes, he may even make you happy for he hath dainty poisons sweet to the taste which he administers to god's people if he feels that our destruction can be more readily achieved by sweets than by bitters he certainly would prefer that which would best affect his end you see the way that spurgeon describes the tactics of satan is not simply uh, to maim you To make you miserable, sometimes Satan will try to make you happy. To say, you really need this, this will make you happy. This is why it's so crucial that we find our identity, not in ourselves, and not in what we want, but in what uh, what God wants. We find our identity in Christ and Christ alone. We have died with Christ, we have been crucified with him, we are raised now together with him. This is why it's so crucial that, when you, that you submit all of your desires to him. The things that you want, the things that you enjoy, the things that, that you really like, those must be submitted to Christ. You have to, they have to come under his lordship as well. Because our sinful heart can often mix motives there. And we can end up pursuing things that are really these sweet poisons from the enemy. Now, what we want to also see through Peter's word here is this the wonderful contrast between the work of the enemy and the work of our Father, the chief shepherd. Remember how Peter has described the Lord? He said, The chief shepherd will appear. Here we have an, a, a, a chief shepherd who tenderly cares for his children who invites us to cast our cares, our worries, anxieties upon him so that we might have peace in him. And by contrast, we now see that there is an enemy who opposes us, who wants to destroy us, who wants to devour us. Now, how do we avoid by being devoured by the roaring lion? Look at verse 9. Peter's straightforward word is this. Resist him. You don't want to get eaten? Resist. This resistance, of course, is not a passive resistance, but you have to actively engage. You have to be aware, have this watchful eye. If you remain passive, you won't be able to resist. How do we resist him? He goes on. Resist him, firm in your faith. We stand firm in our faith. It means that we stand firm in our faith. and This is how we resist the roaring lion. When we stand firm in our faith, what we're doing is we're actively confessing, we're actively putting our trust in God. We're saying the lies that come from the enemy, the ways that he is making us feel, the suffering, the hardship, oppression we're experiencing, we're saying we're not going to let those things shape our identity. We are going to stand firm in our faith, to trust the lord and so we have victory over satan as we continue to trust in jesus because jesus has had victory over satan now peter turns uh, to his hearers and he reminds them of the camaraderie that they have he gives further encouragement he says knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world is Christians everywhere are experiencing this. You guys aren't alone. You're not the only ones. We should be encouraged when we realize that there are other believers who are experiencing uh, hardships throughout the world. There's solidarity. There's community. There's camaraderie. As we pray for others, as they pray for us, we hold each other up. Everyone in the family of God faces Suffering. Hardship. It's just part of the life. As Paul has told us, as Peter has told us. Now for these hearers, and likely for you and I, we have experienced the similar type of suffering that they are experiencing here because uh, these readers, they were experiencing, of course, this social Suffering. They were kind of social outcasts because they weren't participating uh, in the worship practices, the worship activities of the day. They weren't joining in with the culture that was celebrating things that were uh, opposing God. And so they were singled out. And of course, as Christians, we have an allegiance to Christ, and as we refuse to participate in things that exalt other gods, we are going to also be, you know, just by default singled out. And so these Christians, you know, they of course would have been outcasts. He says, other people are experiencing the same thing. You have this same issue together. But Peter reminds us of, of the temporal nature of this suffering. Look at verse 10. He says, And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace has called you, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He does make the confession. Christians will experience hardship. But he does say it only will be for a little while. Now, as a point of clarification here, what he's getting at is this. Like, In life, like, the suffering that these guys are experiencing, that you and I are experiencing, like, they're only going to be short bursts of suffering. That's not what he's getting at. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is the suffering that is only for a little while, that it's a temporal suffering, it really refers to the entirety, the entirety of life. It's called temporal because it's compared to the eternal glory that awaits this is such a a a minimal amount of time peter says the sufferings of this life are going to seem as if they were only lasting a little while when you see it in comparison to the eternal glory that you will experience paul writes similarly in second corinthians verse four or chapter four verse 16 he says so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is something that Paul says, by comparison, is makes makes our current suffering just be a light, momentary affliction. Right? It's like, in comparison... The suffering that you're experiencing in this life, it's like getting a splinter. You're like, oh, whoops, compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits. And so he says, endure. And when we do endure suffering, we take heart for we have a future, this eternal weight of glory. Now, Peter wants us to understand that this has been... uh, Promised to us right this is how he started the book and now he's kind of getting to a summary of, of all that he's said thus far he started the book by saying that we have an inheritance that awaits us that's unfading incorruptible and now he says that this is is given to you it's promised to you and that god himself will restore confirm strengthen and establish you It's God is the one who's going to accomplish this, that he will be faithful, that he will see this through. He is the God of all grace, we're told. He's the one who is giving this grace to those who are following him. This is how it's described. He says, who has called you to an eternal glory in Christ. Of course, this speaks to the work of salvation, that he has called us into a relationship with him. And he will fulfill his promise to save and to deliver. Now, after Peter gets through all of this, he gets to, like, a one-line worship throwdown. Because you can't say, like, all this amazing stuff about how faithful God is and then just be like, okay, like, let me move on to the next thing. Let me just give you some closing notes here. The theology that Peter holds here is correct. The theology that Peter holds here is correct. this is is exactly why our service is structured the way it is, right? Where we begin with kind of our call to worship. We have some songs. We sing together, setting our minds and our hearts upon the Lord, and then we dig into the Word to find out what He might want to say to us. We learn theologically, but then we respond. We respond doxologically. We respond in worship. The proclamation of the word, the teaching of the word, the theological uh, education that we are given by the Holy Spirit should then lead us to heart transformation, to humility, to setting our affections upon God, so that we then respond by agreeing that Christ is Lord of all. And the response after the sermon is where our hearts put this into action, where we say, yes, Lord, this is true. I see that you are the one, I I see that you're the one who will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. If you hear those words that God will be faithful to do that for you, and and then you kind of just sit back and like, all right, like, that's cool. It hasn't really landed with you. If you see the truth of the gospel that, that God is the one who will accomplish this, in the midst of your unfaithfulness, my unfaithfulness, if you see that Christ has overcome Satan's sin and death on your behalf and that these things are promised to you, then you have to respond and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You have to respond in thanksgiving. And this is what Peter gets at here when he finishes in verse 11. He says, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He emphasizes God's power, his authority, his his amazing grace that is demonstrated in the midst of suffering. And then he ends by by responding in worship, by saying, To him, to the Lord alone, be dominion. Right? As we think about the word dominion, that really means like sovereignty or, or, or lordship over all. And what Peter's saying here is, I'm looking to the day where Christ will return and his rule will be recognizable. I look to the day where he will enjoy the evidences, it being manifested that he is sovereign over all things and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He comes to this place of doxology. This is where we all need to end up. We've said this many times. We don't want to to know about God. We want to know him. We want to enjoy him. It doesn't really matter if you know about God. There are plenty of people who have studied uh, the original languages more deeply than you. There's plenty of people who have more theological education than you. But what God has asked you and I to do is to enter into a relationship with him so that we might know him and enjoy him. Our theology has to lead to doxology. We have to learn to respond to him. We don't just want to know things about him. That's not helpful. We want to know him. We want him to work in our lives and to change us and to transform us. We want to move to a place where our identity is rooted so deeply in who he is and how he has rescued us and saved us. Now Paul turns to final thoughts in verse 12. Kind of just giving us a, a bit of final words to wrap up. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So this guy, Silvanus, uh, scholars and academics, you know, think for the most part that Silvanus is actually the same guy uh, that we find in, um, in Paul's life called Silas. Uh, you you find him mentioned in Acts fifteen and twenty seven thirty like, like he um, just kind of moves throughout the book on several missionary journeys with Paul. Uh, Paul also mentions Sylvanus in Second Corinthians one and First Thessalonians 1, one, uh, Second Thessalonians one. And so many scholars believe that this this guy Silvanus, is actually Silas. Uh, and what Paul or excuse me uh, Peter here. Is actually saying is that this this man was um, operating as essentially his his kind of uh, scribe or secretary in this case Uh, he he says by Silvanus a faithful brother as I regard him I have written briefly to you Uh, so it's likely here that uh, Peter is dictating this letter but as this is phrased in this specific way at this particular point in the letter this this also would have been typical of the time, the era, uh, to remark upon the carrier of the letter. So it was likely that this same person, uh, as Peter describes him, a faithful brother, as I, regarded, as I regard him, would have also been the one to carry this letter to the churches, and he would operate there as uh, kind of a functional interpreter there in the churches, so that way, as they were having the conversation, he could help uh, with that and also bring... Further questions back through the form of another letter to Peter, if there were questions as well, and so he says here i 've brought this letter to you by Sylvanus, but he he gives us in summary, the totality of the purpose of his letter, All right so if you don 't want to read the book, uh, the letter that, that Peter gives, if you read this line and you want to know like what 's first Peter about, he tells you here. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. <laughs> like, that's it. It's like, the grace of God is true. It's for you. Stand firm in it. <laughs> like, that's it right there. This is the purpose of his letter, to encourage and bear witness to the grace of God. It belongs to every Christian. God's grace has been given to them. They've not deserved it. But it's the security in which they stand through the work of Christ. And then he finishes here again with a similar, a similar exhortation, uh, not, not exhortation, a similar greeting in, in verse thirteen. He says, "She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet." One another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. His last words to the churches in verse 13 are some greetings. The first, of course, that we see here is from she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. This would have been, he gives us like two really confusing things that first century readers would have understood, but we don't understand because we don't live in this time. But there's this person that he calls as chosen, who is at Babylon, uh, but sends her greetings to those who are uh, in these churches. And, and in short, this uh, what Peter's remarking on is he's not saying like a person greets you, he's saying that the, the church. The church essentially greets you. The the she is the church. Uh, in second John uh john describes the church in second uh in second john as the chosen lady and her children he closes the book by saying the children of your chosen sister send their greetings Um, and so it's similar language here to remark upon this Uh, it definitely would not have referred to an actual woman in babylon one because Babylon wasn't a city at this time; like it was in ruins, so there was no Babylon for a woman to be in. Uh, so this is a, uh, specifically uh, speaking of the church, but more than that, as he does specifically reference uh, the church in Babylon, what he's calling out there is really Babylon being the representative of uh, society culture that opposes God. He says that there that this these other churches that are living in a similar environment, they send greetings as well. They're experiencing the hardships that you're experiencing. And of course, he also sends greetings from Mark, my son, who was like actually not his son, but operates as a son in the faith. Uh, uh, Mark, of course, is John Mark, who is uh, the author of uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, but there's just this relationship that peter and john mark have together uh, and of course they worked closely on the gospel of mark and so there's also this relationship that we see where there's family in christ that are sending support and love for these churches as well and he finally finishes with the simple exhortation greet one another with the kiss of love peace to all of you who are in christ of course uh this kiss of love or uh, a holy kiss as might be described in yours is is you know uh Kind of an old school, uh, typical greeting that would have been, been in that time, uh, similar to like the fancy way that you know you might have might have uh, seen European folks greet each other, uh, and you know you probably were like jealous that like oh like I wish we did that in our culture because that seems really nice. Like what he's saying here is this like when you're when you are experiencing that level of greeting, what you're what you're doing there in in this. Uh, kind of kiss of love is you're bringing yourself in proximity to somebody else and making yourself vulnerable to them. You're saying, "I welcome you." I'm not holding you at a distance. I'm not saying you're over there and I'm over here. You're coming near to say, "I'm exposing myself to you." You know, if you, in such a way that if you wanted to to stab me in the back, I've exposed myself to that That area that I would have normally guarded from you i've ex, i 've exposed you know the areas i 've put myself in striking distance of you, and so by doing that you 're demonstrating this trust, this camaraderie, this fellowship, this family that you have and here this is what peter of course is is getting at, but he finishes lastly with this exhortation, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The peace of God is his final wish his final prayer for those who are in christ for a church that is experiencing hardship and suffering this is all they want they want peace they want to be able to withstand the storm that they're in and this is paul's final word his thing that he prays for them excuse me peter not paul peter prays that they would have peace all of them in christ because outside of christ you're not going to have this peace when you're in christ when your identity is so rooted in him when the enemy does come and tell you the lies when he does say like you're probably not working hard enough or that thing you did was pretty selfish or you know god doesn't love you does he really care about you the hardship and difficulties that you're experiencing if you're trying to have peace on your own, then you're trying to answer those questions and say, well, like, let me think, yes. But if you're in Christ, you can just say, look to the cross. Of course he loves me. He knew everything that I ever did. He knew all of the, the, the sins that I would commit, and yet still, still came and died at the cross for me, and then invited me into his family. He's not surprised. He's not unaware of the things that are going on in my heart. He's not aware, unaware of my weaknesses. But he's fully aware, but yet totally loves me. When we're in Christ, then we run to Christ as our defense again and again and again and again. It's the only thing we go to. Because it's the only thing that can defeat Satan, sin, and death. Christ. Stand firm in the faith. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your work, for your identity that you have given to us. And Lord, we don't want to build our lives upon our own work, upon our own efforts, upon our own um, achievements. But Lord, we want to rest in your work. We want to confess, Lord, that it is through our weakness that you are strong when we are willing to deny ourselves to take up our cross to follow you when we make those confessions lord you can be exalted and so lord this morning we lift you up Lord, we we lay ourselves down before you this morning. We pray that you would reveal in our hearts, Lord, the the things that, Lord, we need to surrender to you, the things that, um, or we could be tempted to overlook. As the enemy is about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Lord, we we recognize that He may come and try to give us bitters, but He may try to, to bring sweetness. And so, Lord, we want to to make sure that everything in our life is under Your Lordship, that You are ruling and reigning In every way. Lord, we're thankful that you, Lord, you will be faithful to your people. We're thankful that you will that you let us cast our cares upon you, our anxieties, our worries, our fears. Lord, restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us in Christ. We love you. Amen.